I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Hey, are we recording? Good afternoon. Oh my gosh. That old joke. Hey, uh, I thought people were pretty tired about that. Katie Thornton said if we make that comment one more time, she'd stop listening. Well, <laughs> that's a risk we'll have to take. <laughs> Is it worth it? What's the return on investment there? Good, good afternoon, gentlemen. We have a, we're, Hi, Jesse. We're going through some more things here on the mass. Hello from right. Kansas. I'm, I'm running between tornadoes as we speak. You aren't either. It's not tornado season. Yeah, I know. But it's Kansas. It close enough. Kansas, yeah. Hey, and come hey, coming up soon. We're gonna be out there for yes. a live podcast. Huh? That's right. November what is it, ninth? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Second week in November. Jesse's gonna talk about Catholic media and podcasts and why they're important. Chris is gonna talk about how to celebrate the mass like the saints, correct? Yep. Yep. And this is three nights in a row. The eighth will be Chris's talk. The ninth will be a two or one liturgy guy's recordings. And then the, on the tenth, Jesse will share his great wisdom. So open to the public. Anybody can come. So drive here from Omaha. Drive here from Seattle. Whatever. Come and but, hear liturgy but guys. Do not drive there from California. You're not wanted. No, yeah, I'm that's just right. <laughs> Unless you're from Orange County, so, then you're. Sorry, ready. Vicki Delaney. Sorry. Orange. <laughs> Orange County. If she brings pie crust, she's welcome. All right. So uh, what do we got going today? Uh, 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 I assume just Chris is the one that manages our content. So Chris, what are we doing? Well, uh, if you if you recall from last week, Jesse, when we were together podcasting, we are taking this season and not exclusively, but primarily doing this uh, walk through the mass through principally the ordinary form uh, and kind of putting a, an image in our mind's eye of what it ought to look like if it's uh, celebrated with intelligence according to the mind of the church, according to the tradition of the church, and what is possible. Because, yeah, there you go. Yeah, because, that's the right um, answer. I think, well, you know this, Jesse, and you do too, Dennis. People will come to, well, and I know this like when we do our formation weekends in uh, in lacrosse. People will come to the mass that is at the Liturgical Institute, for example, and they're like, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? That's kind of strange. When in fact... Uh, it's only strange because it's not seen very often. It's really, really very much according to Hoyle, right out of the book. The norms are the exception and the exceptions are the norm. That's what we see liturgically. Absolutely. I mean, it's consistent with the rest of this upside down world that uh, we're in. But, you know, so yeah, so that's what we want to do. So we started by reading Traditionis Custodes, you know, which, which I think is a letter as much to uh, Catholics who celebrate the ordinary form, encouraging them to go back to the books, you know, quit, quit driving people out of uh, ordinary form celebrations by, by uh, infidelity and idiosyncrasies and things like that. And goofing around. And that's not to say that it's not to say that this should be rote or, you know, um, you know, sterile or bland Mm -hmm. and just kind of going through the motions, right? No, absolutely not. It should be, uh, uh, it should be with uh, uh, prayer and intelligence and devotion and understanding all the rest. Not, you know, like robots and things like that, but um, but with uh, fidelity. So it should grow out of the nature of the liturgy itself, wouldn't you say? It should. Everything should. Yeah. yeah. And when you hear the nature of what's my favorite word, Jesse? 
Uh, pie crust. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, that's my second favorite word after ontology. Ontology, right? So liturgy has a nature, and so we should be growing out of that nature. So there you go. So, but, but before we actually start to walk through the Mass, we're preparing for Mass, just like you should do at 1030 at St. Mary's on Sunday morning. So we looked at, uh, what, the ministers of the liturgy. We looked at the vestments. Uh, in the liturgy, we looked at Dennis. You took us through a look at the altar and the church building, right? There's, yes. It just doesn't all of a sudden begin uh, ex nihilo. There's a lot of context and preparation, but I think there's one more thing we need to talk about before mass begins, and that's uh, what our topic is for today, and that's the spiritual preparation and the prayerful preparation. Be nice in the parking lot. Well, and even you know what I, the place I thought we'd begin. And I might have more experience in this than uh, either of you, but listeners out there will know what I'm talking about. Imagine you're in the sacristy before mass. Mm, sacristy. But, no, that's coffee and donuts after mass. Oh. This is before mass, um, especially if it's a, uh, a principal mass. I, you know, I even get to be in the sacristy at like cathedral masses when the bishop is there. How would you describe the atmosphere of the sacristy before mass? This is what it sounds like. Chaos, chaos. Jesse, is that right? Solemn. Yeah, yeah. I well, it, what it should sound like is just like you're saying. It should be solemn, but it's mostly my experience is more like uh, what Dennis is saying. Especially these uh, bishops' masses at the cathedral. There's people going everywhere. There's servers asking questions. There's trying to track down the lector. You know, are all of the ministers present? It's a little bit of chaos, and in fact, sometimes. I'd say you have to shut the door because it's almost, I don't know if scandalous is the right word, but it's embarrassing. I mean, it's so noisy in the sacristy that the people in the nave, I think, would have to be disturbed that the ministers who are about to celebrate uh, the sacred liturgy are experiencing chaos in the sacristy. And as a person who's been cantor many times, I've often had to ask the question, Father, are you going to start the Gloria? Father, do you want to sing this? Do you want to sing that? And I don't know. And I need to know because Mass is starting in three minutes. So I get it. I often contribute to that chaos. Chris, I wanted to make note of this uh, amazing article. And, and I ended up doing an interview with the with the author. But Father uh, Michael Rainier did this article for Adoramus Bulletin about your faith on your sleeve, why vesting prayers never go out of fashion. And we, we talked a lot about it, and the article talks a lot about this preparation as well and the silence and what the prayers and the spirituality are before. So uh, I wanted to point people there. You go to adoramus.org, Father yeah. Michael Rainier. Yeah, it is a good one. He, Jesse, you, you'll remember he makes that point too that, you know, yeah, the server needs to know a certain question about, you know, when to bring the book or something like that. But those that's legit. But often it's, you know, hey, what do you, how do you think those Packers are going to do today, you know, uh, or whatever it might be. Things that are completely irrelevant. Well, I'm sure God loves the Packers. That's why they have a G <laughs> on the side of their helmet, Jesse. Oh, man. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, but the Bears have a C for Christ, so. <laughs> that's good. So um, what the missile has in mind, okay, and this is uh, whether it's the 1962 missile or the 2001 missile or 2011 missile, whatever it is. And the tradition has in mind is that, you know, this, you're about to enter another world. Uh, you're about to meet God uh, in a very personal way. And that takes a lot of preparation. 
You know, just like yes. th think of the preparation it takes to do a podcast, whether it's technical or theological or oh, liturgical, organizational. I work hard. And anything that's worth doing takes a lot of prep, and Mass is one of those. And so we need to look at what the Missal wants us to do uh, prior to Mass. You know what has been on my mind, and I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, is that moment in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Did I talk about this already? All the kids are waiting to go into the factory and they open the door and Gene Wilder starts singing, come with me and you'll see. That chocolate factory is awesome. They leave the world. And if those Oompa Loompas and Charlie, not Charlie, but you know, what's his name? Willy Wonka were not making that factory, they would not leave the earth. It's a lot of work it takes to do all that. Same thing. Except for in, in mass, instead of the everlasting gobstopper, you have the everlasting grace. There you go. See, that is awesome. Wow. All yeah. of these analogies. Yeah, I've heard a lot of analogies about the mass, but I, not until today have I heard uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, what happens when they go in there? They leave the world and there's this magical place shimmering with specialness. That's what our mass should be like. That's what our church should be like. And uh, it takes a lot of work to do that. All right. So, yeah, and, and you know, even, even if you have all the ministers and their vest just right, and you have a beautiful altar in a beautiful church, if the ministers and the people are not spiritually, prayerfully prepared, then the Mass is not going to be like it ought. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's look at the Missal about what, uh, for example, the ministers ought to do. So in the, yeah, so we're talking about the Missal, right? This is the, um, the, the, the big red book that's on the altar. Right? And uh, in, the, uh, in the back of the Missal, is a series of prayers of preparation for Mass. Now, one of the things that's struck me is, well, why is this in the uh, appendix for the Missal? Right? Why isn't this up front? You know, because it would seem that, you know, if preparation for Mass uh, is prior to Mass and it's important, it should get a greater uh, place in uh, the Missal than shoved back in the, one of the appendices. But anyway, when you're Pope Dennis, you... Uh, you can change that around. Okay. Make it so, number one. Yeah. All right. So in the uh, uh, one of the appendices for Mass are a series of preparation prayers for Mass. So what should be happening in the sacristy, rather than chaos and tracking down ministers and talking about you know the day's events uh, in the secular world, should be a, a period of silence. I think the germ even says that. Uh, about uh, places of silence in the Mass. One of those is prior to Mass, not only in the nave, but in the sacristy uh, as well. And you know what grows out of that or is related to that is a sacristy, properly speaking, is more like a chapel than a dressing room. In older churches, you'll often see an altar at one end of the sacristy, a place where someone could actually say Mass. So it would have a chapel-like quality, much more than a hurry up and get things done. So in the old churches, they used to have a, a vesting sacristy, and often the bishop had his own sacristy. And then other people would have the work sacristy or the altar boy sacristy. They'd have three or four sacristies in an old cathedral to keep the noisy kids away from the celebrant preparing for mass. Huh. Yeah, I think there's some real wisdom in that. It certainly gets at the spirit of what should be happening. But in the uh, in the back of the missal, there's a series of prayers uh, for mass. So the first one, let's just we're not going to read through all these. But this you know, one from Saint Ambrose, awesome. Yeah. So imagine now, imagine you know, especially our listeners, you you're probably a reader, or a server, or some sort of minister for mass. Now a picture your sacristy this Sunday, and a spirit of unhurried, quiet recollection, and then this prayer starts from Saint Ambrose. <sighs> Dennis, why don't you read at least the first? sentence of us 
of it. I draw near, I draw near loving Lord Jesus Christ to the table of your most delightful banquet in fear and trembling, a sinner, presuming not on my own merits, but trusting rather in your goodness and mercy. I have a heart and a body defiled by my many offenses. You just wanted me to say that. (laughs) I have a heart and body defiled by my many offenses, a mind and tongue over which I have kept no good watch. And then I turn to you in my misery and so on. Yeah, and it goes on for, it's like a two-page prayer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, imagine if uh, the ministers could witness the priest, could hear the priest saying this about drawing uh, near to the banquet in fear and trembling. That's a different type of mindset than I think uh, most of us have. I don't have that kind of mindset, you know, before mass on. A, now, I'm the I'm the, the the cantor at my own parish church. And what I'm doing before mass is often picking out hymns or rehearsing the psalm or checking out uh, who showed up, you know, from the vantage point of the choir loft and things like that. But I'm not, uh, uh, you know, meditating and praying about drawing near to the altar in fear and trembling. That would do a great deal. Can I read another sentence? This one's awesome. To you, O Lord, I display my wounds. To you, I uncover my shame. That's undoing Adam and Eve, right? Who ran and hid in shame. I'm aware of my many great sins for which I fear, but I hope in your mercies, which are without number. So it's this tension, right? Between we're stuck in the fallen world of Adam and Eve who ran and hid in shame. And we want to hide our wounds from God, but because of his mercy, we have this trust in him. And going into mass will be very, should be very much like that. I'm a sinner. Well, that's what we're supposed to offer, right? I mean, a lot of times we, I mean, it's it's weird. You know, when, when, uh, when I'm thinking about what I'm offering on the altar and myself, uh, I guess I have a resistance to that vulnerability. And so if I were to meditate and read those prayers, I think that would allow me to more actively participate in the sacrifice in a, in a very full and intimate way. Yeah, you know, we, we were talking uh, before this that it would be uh, great if we could get and post some of these prayers uh, in the show. Do we have show notes? I think we have show notes. Uh, that uh, people could actually I mean, try this. Uh, next Sunday, print off this prayer and pray it with your family, uh, or if you're a minister or something like, pray it in the sacristy before mass. Right? This is what it ought to be. You can have the most beautiful church in the world if you're not spiritually prepared. It's not. It's going to kind of fall flat. So, let's look at another one. The next one is uh, the prayer to Saint Tom, uh, prayer of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Do you have that one, Dennis? I do. How's that am, I the lect- am I the lector of this podcast? You the lector. Okay. Almighty uh, Institute. No. Almighty eternal God, behold, I come to the sacrament of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as one sick to the physician of life, one unclean to the fountain of mercy, as one blind to the light of eternal brightness, as one poor and needy to the Lord of heaven and earth. I ask, therefore, for the abundance of your immense generosity that you may graciously cure my sickness, wash away my defilement. You want me to say this again? Give light to my blindness, enrich my poverty, clothe my nakedness. Everybody wants that. So that I may receive the bread of angels, the king of kings, lord and lords, with such reverence and humility, such contrition and devotion, such purity and faith, and uh, purpose and intention as are conducive to the salvation of my soul. Boom. Yeah, it goes on still further. Yeah, another one. And then there's one more uh, prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, O Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of tenderness and mercy, Dennis, a miserable and unworthy (laughs) sinner, I mean, I, a miserable and unworthy sinner, fly to you with all the affection of my heart, and I beseech your motherly love, that as you stood by your most dear son, 
while I hung on the cross. So in your kindness, you may be pleased to stand by me, a poor sinner. And it continues. That one's a little bit shorter. It'd be, it'd be great to have those as little pew cards for people to read before Mass. Well, you know, why not? I mean, you direct a liturgical institute. You could make them for your student. Why why couldn't a parish do that for, I mean, really, wouldn't that be cool? So if the, if the, the pastor just, I mean, this prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary, that's the shortest one, uh, printed those off. Especially, Dennis, because it has that line about standing by all priests who today are offering the sacrifice mm-hmm. here throughout the entire Holy Church. Imagine you had a church full of people praying this prayer along with the priest and his ministers who were in the sacristy. Okay, Mass hasn't even begun. I mean, uh, I think it'd be remarkable what could happen in that parish. You know what I did in class yesterday is uh, this is a liturgical movement class. We were talking about interior and exterior participation. So I asked them to sing holy, holy all the way through. And everybody's looking at me and I was making gestures with my hands to distract them. Then I said, close your eyes and sing it again. How was it different? And they could hear the people next to them. Then I said, imagine now you're looking at the face of God and you're speaking to him of how holy he is. And then we sang it one more time. And I said, now you, you have the angels and the saints and all of creation on either side of you. And you're looking at the face of God. And that was the move from exterior participation to interior participation to really get in the larger question of what's happening uh, and uh, I think it worked. We'll see. It was a good way to open up class anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah, try that with a with, uh, two-year-old Zelly Weiler <laughs> running around on the pews. Uh, you know. Yeah, she's not quite ready yet. She's but. worshiping God according to her ontology. So that's right. Uh, crawling her around st- and pooping, then that's how she does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but you know those other two kids—they're not—they're not half bad at this whole mm-hmm. thing. So. Yeah, I bet if you asked Agnes to imagine she's singing with the angels and the saints, I bet at her age she would have great imagination to do that. Yeah, and Isaac is the one where he overcompensates his voice. So like you—you—he loves like the the Alleluia before the the gospel, and he's just like shouting, you know, mm-hmm. and I, you know. That's part of it, yeah. part of his learning. Yeah, yeah. Hey, there's one more here then, uh, prayer before Mass, uh, but it's a little bit different from the others. It's called Formula of Intent. Mm-hmm. And That's be- for the priest, I guess? Or yeah, for yeah. So it says, uh, my intention is to celebrate Mass and to consecrate the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the rite of the Holy Roman Church to the praise of Almighty God and all the church triumphant for my good and that of all the church militant for all who have commended themselves to my prayers in general and in particular and for the welfare of holy roman church amen amen now why is this prayer uh this is sacramental theology quiz time why is this prayer different from the others or what's unique about it well it's in some ways it's integral to the mass right because you have to have matter form and intent bingo Right. So you can be a validly ordained minister. You can say the right form. You can have the right matter. But if you don't have the right intention, ain't nothing happens. Okay. And uh, there's theologians. So so that's um, what they call, I don't know, de fide is the right way to say it. But the, the intention of the minister is absolutely necessary for the validity of a sacrament. Now, theologians debate how explicit or implicit that uh, intent can be, but uh, most of the time they set a pretty high bar that the intention of the minister has to be rather uh, active throughout uh, throughout the celebration. And so this is another one I thought, you know, why isn't this right before the, uh, how's Roman Canon 1 begin, Dennis? Is it Te Igitur? And so uh, to you, 
most merciful father. And yeah. so that the, they make this big decorative T. Letter T, yeah, right. But I think just opposite, they should have this formula of intent because if the intent is not uh, active, then that invalidates the sacrament. So some serious stuff that goes on. And again, this is another one that I think is doesn't deserve to be buried in one of the appendices of the missile because it's so important. I had two questions. One, um, you were talking about the ministers preparing. Is there a formula of intent for the sacrament of matrimony for that liturgy between yes. the bride and groom? Yeah, well, I think... Is that in the prenatanda or... No, no, there's not a formula, but the thing is, is that if, if you and your spouse are uh, saying these words, but you do not have the intention of fulfilling them, either because of some uh, defect in uh, the consent or there's all sorts of reasons that make your, basically, as, as far as I understand it, um, that invalidate your intention. I never intended to have stay married to this woman or have children with this woman or whatever it is, well, then, then the contract, the bond that you're trying to establish is null and void. So basically- right. But there's no but there's no like prayer of formula of intent type of deal. There's not, but I think generally the idea is, is you meeting with the priest for six months prior to marriage is for him to guarantee, yeah. for him to ascertain that you do in fact have the capacity and the willingness to make this type of intention. So. My, my, other, my other question is, how, how come these and the vesting prayers, uh, to my knowledge, how come they're not required as a yeah. part of? Yeah, well, here's, um, I, Jesse, when you're Pope. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was Pope. <laughs> I'll be the second married Pope. Okay, so another set of prayers that, that a priest can use are called vesting prayers. And I think in the extraordinary form, those are actually, or in the 1962 Missal and prior, these are in the Missal, but these are no longer in the uh, post-conciliar Missal, the vesting prayers, that is. Instead, they have these other prayers. But there's a site, there's there's a page on the, the website of the Holy See, the Vatican. It's from the Office for the Liturgical Celebrations of the Supreme Pontiff. And it says, uh, while it is possible to use different prayers or simply lift one's mind up to God, Nevertheless, the texts of the vesting prayers are brief, precise in language, inspired by biblical spirituality, and have been prayed for centuries by countless sacred ministers. These prayers thus recommend themselves still today for the preparation for the liturgical celebration, even for the liturgy according to the ordinary form of the Roman rite, end quote. So again, that's from the, what is it, the Office for Liturgical Celebrations of the Supreme Pontiff. And so... Yeah, these are another option that the priest could use. Now, why aren't they mandatory? I don't know, Jesse. I, I would say that some sort of spiritual and prayerful preparation is mandatory. But um, what that, what form that takes is a little bit up in the air. I got to imagine if every priest had to say that formula of intent, mm -hmm. like if they were required to say that before Mass, mm -hmm. I don't know. I think something spectacular would happen. I think before the council, there were a lot of required things that people just rattled through and they thought, well, if you make them mandatory, then people just have to do them to fulfill the law. What we really want them to do is grow out of the desire of their hearts to, to mean these things. So I think there was a lot of thinking like if it's mandatory, it will be more – if it's not mandatory, it will be more authentic when people choose it for themselves. I think the effect is that people just kind of forgot about them more yeah. often than made them more authentic. You know, Dennis, what it reminds me of is – I. I 
you know, I forget most of the things uh, you tell me, but some things I uh, have stuck in there. And oh, really? You were telling wow. me about a book you found about how to vest for mass, and it's about how to put on. I think it was the either the amos or the alb. So first, first, let me talk about this. Is the vesting prayer that goes along with the amos? Now, an amos is a cloth that's maybe I don't know what is it like three feet long and two feet deep, I suppose. And then there's strings that come off the end of it. And apparently it started like a hood, like a monk's hood, I think. And then gradually, you know, it would go onto the shoulders. And what the amos does, I think we talked about this in the last one, is it's meant to be to cover any street clothes, even like clerical clothing. Okay. And as the priest puts this on, he says, place upon me, O Lord, the helmet of salvation that I may overcome the assaults of the devil. Now, what you were in the what, what reminded me of this, Dennis, is in the I think it's called the ritus servandus. So these are the rites of the service that the priest would. What today is kind of called the general instruction or general introductions to these liturgical books, but in the preconciliar books, you'd have this this kind of table of things, and and it would describe how to put on the amos. And this is what I remember you telling me about. Do you remember this? Dennis? I have no idea what you're talking about, but you can remind me of what I told you. Well, it's like you were saying before, though, the, the instructions are so precise about holding the corners between the index finger and the thumb on both sides and kissing it. And then it would describe how you would twirl it around and let it rest on top of your head before pushing it back to your shoulders. Or again, with the alb, it would be you'd you'd put your right I think, I don't know what it is. You'd put your right arm in first before putting the left arm in, and then it would go over your head. And I think to the point you were making before is there were so many sort of, um, I don't know, instructions or mandates, you know, even to the smallest things. And I don't mean by this, it's, these are unimportant, but I think what you're saying before is just everything kind of got thrown out. You know, uh, th these prayers included. So um, we, I think, lost a lot. I, so I think the, the call isn't to go back and do everything exactly like it would have been done 75 years ago. But those good things, the serious seriousness with which priests prepared, we should say two, um, I, I, it's probably not accurate to say every priest was doing all of this just right. 75 years ago. I can't imagine that's the case. But kind of the spirit of these prayers is consistent in whichever missile one happens to be using. So properly, vesting properly, praying properly, whether they're the vesting prayers or other prayers, I think are, are essential to the, on the front end of Mass if you want this to succeed. And by succeed, I mean to become, to let it become that source of sanctity that it's meant to be. At the very least, it can be an ex opere operantis kind of moment, right? Where you become more disposed to receive grace, more disposed to receive the help of the Holy Spirit if you're a celebrant. So uh, it's not not a good thing to toss these things off too lightly. Yeah. You know, there's there's a number of vesting prayers. There's one for the alb. There's one for the cincture. There's one for the stole. There's one for the chasuble that, uh, as the Holy See says, can still be prayed uh, in a fitting way. But I think, you know, why don't we, before we wrap this up, I, I guess I'd want to shift it to, you know, it's not just father and the deacon that needs to get this right so our mass can be good. It has to be the Weiler family or the Karstens family or whatever. And, you know, 
imagine your, what's it like in the Weiler household? I know the Weilers have it together here, <laughs> but what's it like in the Weiler household? If you're trying to get everybody uh, out of the house and into the car and prayer, you know, and get to mass on time, prepare it. I mean, it's, I know like in our house, it can be a lot of chaos about hollering to brush your teeth and, you know, where the heck did, heck, we'll say for the podcast, where the heck did you leave your shoes and things like that? No, you can't wear those things. I thought I told you to get on a sweater over that. You're wearing that skirt to mass. You can't. And that's just what Marguerite tells you. So (laughs) you can can imagine what what you're telling the kids. We're, We're fortunate, Chris. We have about a 25 minute drive. Uh, to get to church, and uh, we have a every Sunday we do a rosary in the car on the way to church, and so we kind of rest our minds there. And you know what, little Agnes, she's the one who leads the rosary. I do the creed and then the prayers at the end, but she leads every decade. And then Isaac gets a little jealous, so he does the glory be at the end of the decades. <laughs> That's fantastic. But we, you know, we we try to we try to center ourselves and prepare the best we can. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly better than running late, having the radio on, yelling at the kids in the back seat. Uh, I mean, you know, the point of, again, of all this is that if you want mass to be what it's supposed to be, it's going to take some spiritual preparation by everybody in that building. And I think until that happens, uh, you can you can use any ritual book you want, whether it's from 62 or 2011. You can uh, be as uh, uh, sloppy or as beautiful in the right. but you know, it's not a mechanical thing. It's a spiritual thing. And that takes a lot of work. Yes. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. Well, uh, we have a liturgy question. I think we're all going to enjoy. So why don't we go uh, hear that? I am so excited. Never as much excitement from Chris on that segment. (laughs) Chris, do you want to lead the uh, formula of intent for answering a liturgy question? (laughs) It is my intention to let Dennis answer this question. It is my intention to say one thing and then give it to Chris to finish. Clothe my nakedness as I answer this liturgy question. (laughs) All right. Question time. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? This week, we have a question from Chris. uh, Chris W., not... Uh, Chris C. And uh, it's kind of a long thing, so I'll try to paraphrase as much as I can. Uh, He says, hi, guys. Hi, Chris W. Hi, Chris W. (laughs) He says, love the show. Quick question. I heard recently that the lectionary used by priests assumes autorientum posture, phrases like turn towards the people. And this has been used as an argument that it is allowed or even the default posture for the new missile. However, I have read the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and it states that the altar should be freestanding so that the priest can say the service facing toward the people, which is to be done wherever possible. And then he basically asks, uh, is this, does this mean that this is the norm or the typical uh, orientation for Mass? So there's, there's more there, but that's the basic gist of the question. you have any thoughts on this, Chris? Uh, I do. I want to find that... Uh, do you... Uh, Jesse, uh, uh, does Chris include in the uh, what are the actual quote from the germ? No, he just he just. I have it here. It's okay. What does it say, Dennis? It's paragraph two ninety nine. Okay. The altar should be built separate from the wall in such a way that it is possible to walk around it easily, and that mass can be celebrated at it facing the people, 
which is desirable wherever possible. Yeah, on first uh, reading that, it seems to say that, yeah, it's it's desirable whenever possible that the priests say mass facing the people. But I think um, it, it's not as clear. So the question should be, and I think the Latin gives a better indication of what the answer is, what is desire? What is desirable whenever possible? Is it that the priest say mass facing the people? Is it that he can walk around it? Is it that the altar be built apart from the wall? Which of those three is desirable whenever possible? And I think uh, the I, I think the more accurate read, uh, I'm not capable, my Latin is not capable of parsing this out, but from what uh, others have told me, and according to the tradition, it, it, it it's not that he he celebrate mass facing the people whenever possible. I, I think that's the incorrect read. Um, anyway, that's that's my two cents. And I, I think another curious thing is this line, or at least the first part of it, first appeared in, uh, I don't know, was it maybe it's Inter Ecumenici, which was one of the first documents after uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. It did not include that last line, which is desirable whenever possible. That came in later, and I think sort of mysteriously, or at least unknown to me, when that uh, eventually found its way in. But I think the more accurate read is that that line, desirable whenever possible, is not referring to the priest saying mass facing the people. What do you think, Dennis? Yeah, it's hard to, to say. I have the, the Latin here, and it's not going to help me much to read it, but it just has comma, quote, expedit ubicumque possibile sit. So... They have the two phrases before, and it's hard to know which which phrase it's modifying. Now, I I know just from my own study that the freestanding altar, apart from the wall, so that the priest could walk all around it, was definitely a goal of the early 20th century liturgical movement. Remember, we've talked about this before, that if you have a big reredos or a big sort of screen of statues behind the altar, that you don't get to the other side of it. And so the Roman model of altar, like you still see at St. Peter's or Paul outside the walls, they have a freestanding altar under a baldacchino. And the norms of the rubrics were that you would incense all the way around the altar. In many places, because you couldn't get all the way around the altar, you didn't incense all around it. And there was a step off the top step that signified incensing the back of the altar. So there are a lot of words in the general instruction, like circumstantes, right? Gathered around those kinds of words. So it's definitely consistent to say, the altar should be freestanding whenever possible so that you can walk all the way around it. Now, the text itself is not clear, so you have to look at context. I remember hearing that the, the Polish translation did not say that it was that the priest faces the people whenever, uh, whenever. well, even then it says, what does it say? Whenever um, possible, which is desirable wherever possible. They were saying the freestanding. So the English one leaves it ambiguous. So I guess the answer is until we get a dubium from the Holy See that answers the question, we can look to the context, but we don't really know for sure. This kind yeah. of falls under the, uh, if you're if you're confused or it's unclear what's happening, you use the hermeneutic of continuity and you use your study and understanding of liturgical principles to help educate the, your response, right? I mean, that sounds like where we should go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I I think there is a, I don't know if it was a, a dubium to that exact point, but there are uh, dubia that speak to this. And uh, the Holy See makes clear that both both are uh, uh, options, uh, at least the direction of the priest. I would like to look in the 1965 Missal and see what it says there, but I don't have it right at my fingertips there. In the 1962 Missal, at least, there's uh, diagrams at the beginning 
about how to incense a freestanding altar and how to incense an altar that's uh, against the wall. I don't know if that would help. Yeah. I think in the new missile, it's been censored. So, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> Aren't you All glad right, you Chris. asked, Chris? <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my joke and not their answer. Uh, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Uh, or you can go to the hog roast annually mm. in uh, Wisconsin, and Chris might be there. Wazika. Uh, or come to 416 Bishop Fink Hall, Benedictine College, Atchison, Kansas, 66002, and see me. Yeah, oh. you could do that as well. So, all right. <laughs> Th- thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by Adoremus, the Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture and Ex Corde, both at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.